So, Bob, you recently went to an emotionally focused therapy training for individuals, because usually EFT is what we call emotional, emotionally focused therapy. Is is it emotion? Is it emotionally f- or emotion focused? Oh, good question. There are two animals: emotionally focused therapy for couples. That's Sue Johnson. Emotion focused therapy is Les Greenberg. I used to know the difference. There is a diff- difference. Um, they're also linked because she was his graduate student, and she developed her. You know, her her mo is different from his, and I'm not real clear about what the difference is. I have something on my computer if we really want to look it up. If I was to take a stab at it, this is just a guess based on, you know, from studying both Greenberg and Johnson. Yeah. Greenberg was, fo- he was focused on individuals right. for the most part and wanted people to, uh, or his style of therapy was uh, instead of focusing on cognitions and on history, it was like, what's, you know, what's going on for you emotionally right now? And, right. and the times, a lot of the dominant therapy models were actually trying to get people to stop talking about their emotions. Right. To get them, you know, that emotions were like these pesky things that were remnants from our past, you know, uh, evolution. They were, and we still kind of talk this way. It's like I was on the road, someone cut me off, and my my reptile brain kicked in and I wanted to kill that person. Right. Well, we can all say like, well, okay, that emotion is something that we don't want to value or or guide our behavior. Right. So they kind of shoved all emotions into that. And Greenberg comes along as part of, a, I believe, the humanistic movement, if, if I'm remembering right. I'm not sure. Makes sense. And wanted to f- focus on, on emotions and, and say that emotions were important, that they were important guides to your needs, and that when you listen to your emotions, you you can find well-being. And you shouldn't try to Again, this is me just taking a stab at it. Mm -hmm. And then Sue Johnson, who was a grad student of Greenberg, really liked emotion-focused therapy. And as she started to learn about attachment theory as well, and she started to do uh, family therapy and couple therapy, she started to develop uh, a, a version of emotion or emotionally focused therapy that was uh, integrated for both uh, integrative of both what Greenberg was talking about and attachment theory theory. while applying it to systems Systems. and communication and in the room bonding and helping people to meet each other's attachment needs. Um, So that's my guess. That's true. Yeah. Uh, so we can say emotion focused or emotionally focused, I, I guess. But we're, what we're talking about with you here, Sue Johnson's emotionally yeah. focused yes. therapy, normally for couples, couples. And, couples and families. Uh, but you went to a training for using this model EFT with individuals. Is that right? Yes. They call it EFIT, emotionally focused individual therapy. EFIT. EFIT. Because we need another acronym. Right. Sounds. I mean, it sounds like a wearable, right? Advice. An e-fit. Yeah. There probably is an e-fit somewhere out there. Oh, yeah. There's a Fitbit. There's an e-commerce. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, I thought we would go into that. Sure. But first, let's introduce the podcast. Well, give us a taste a little bit of, of what we might talk about today. It's like going on the holodeck of the Enterprise. Honest to God. What do you mean? 
EFIT, EFIT is, um, is actually working with, um, uh, they don't say it like this, Intradex, but it's literally like you make a hologram and you interact with the hologram or the hologram is already within you and you interact with it. And that's as good a tease as I'm going to give you. So you're saying that the model proposes in session that you, it's empty chair work essentially? Well, without the empty chair. Yeah, they don't do the. She said, we, we don't do the furniture moving. That's how she put it. It's very funny. Um, so you imagine someone yeah. and interact with that person. And, yeah, and, and imagine that person's interacting with you and this is all acted out. Interesting. Yeah. And it it integrates all of emotionally focused therapy, but also can be used with individuals and helps people with their attachment. Attachment. Recovery. Recovery. Um, and can potentially change their attachment style from more insecure to less insecure. That's the goal. All right. Well, this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I am Bob Gettle. I'm your friend from graduate school and a therapist in practice here in Seattle. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. Oh, wow. Lucky ducks. So if you want to hear this whole episode, you have to become a patron like all the other people who are patrons. When you become a patron on Patreon.com, you'll get instructions on accessing this episode as well as hundreds of other episodes that are only available to patrons. Arguably, our best episodes are only available to patrons. So go to Patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast, and know that part of your pledge goes towards various charities and scholarships that we support. We're actually giving out our third and fourth scholarship uh, soon. Wow. Uh, or, uh, the deadline for the scholarship application is the end of December 2019. Both scholarships are for $2,000. Wow. And we've already given thousands of dollars to pet organizations, to scholarships, to LGBTQ wow. charities, to homelessness charities. Yeah, I mean, it's really quite special to, and it's not my money. It's it's the listeners, it's the patrons' money yeah. that I just take a little bit off the top and I funnel it towards these organizations. So patrons out there, or if you're considering to become a patron, uh, know that when you become a patron, you're, you're supporting efforts like that. You're helping someone get through graduate school. One of our scholarships, the one of the $2,000 scholarships, was actually a donation from an anonymous listener who just gave me $2,000 to give to a, uh, a student who needs that money. Wow. Yeah. Anonymous, too. That's lovely. Yeah. yeah it wasn't me. So become a patron at patreon.com and be one of us. You're wearing a Patreon t-shirt. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone, people. So why did you want to go to this training? I'm just curious. Well, you know me. I do a lot of EFT uh, for couples. I do a lot of that. And um, I thought that this would be good because half my practice is couples, but the other half is one-on-one counseling. And I thought this would be a good uh, thing to learn because I I believe attachment is like the big deal. And so I want to learn this because I wanted to use it to help with my personal clients. Had you already been using EFT with your individuals? Not like this. Not like this. Tell no. Me. What well, thinking in an attachment framework, thinking about um, the experience of therapy as corrective, um, and thinking about the connection between me and my clients as part of the, as, well, not part, really probably the biggest um, uh, potential energy for change. 
So and so the EFT for individuals EFIT, EFIT is yeah. uh, I'm curious like what's what differentiates it from what you just said because I do what you just said yeah I'm curious what EFIT ta- you know takes it to another level or do, you know tell us more yeah uh, well. Um, Let's say, um, let's, let's pretend, I'm just going to use a metaphor here. Let's pretend you're a soldier in a war. Okay. And you wanted, you had Which PTSD. Uh, the current war. Okay. Okay. And you, you had PTSD from horrible experiences in that war. I just read this yesterday. One of the things that they're doing is they're creating virtual reality programs where um, they capture uh, human senses. So sight, sound, even smell. And they immerse you in a program that's like the experience you had in the battle or wherever, um, so that your brain can um, expose to it and start differentiating between that was then and this is now, and you know exposure therapy to move through trauma, mm-hmm. right? So essentially, yeah, I mean, like to uh, to be specific, like we have people who are afraid of bridges, for example, right? right. And you typically in in sessions, yeah, you have to talk about like, okay, imagine yourself right. on a bridge, and then after session today, I want you to go out onto a bridge. Right. I'm not going to be there because I'm going to be here in the office. Well, sometimes I go. Sometimes they go, but yeah. you know, it's 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 expensive. It's hard. Blah blah it blah. Yeah. And through that exposure of visualizing or being on a bridge, you can habituate to the bridge and yeah. become no longer phobic of bridges. Right. Or you can use uh, virtual reality and walk across a bridge because you know I don't know about have you done virtual reality before no, never uh, I have I have a I Oculus you Quest gear, if you want right? to try it out yeah yeah it's it's intense man like like things like bridges are terrifying like you you re, you have to you have to get used to VR actually to not be terrified of it it's the first time you put it on like you're it really even though cognitively you, you know, know it but your brain yeah. is like no 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 it no 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 processes no. the information yeah it's yeah. It, it it's like i hear you yeah. frontal lobe saying that yeah. this is not real but i'm quite convinced this is real right <laughs> like don't don't even it's sort of like when i was on the new have you been up in the new space needle no so I'm afraid of heights. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, well, don't go up there because they convert it into into all glass. Oh, the hell with that. I'm not going up there. It's a lot of glass anyway. Yeah. And there's this uh you can if you can really kind of freak yourself out by leaning against this glass that's sort of angled out over, you know, and and I'm not that I'm not actually afraid of heights. My knees will get a little kind of wobbly, but yeah. but I'm not I'm not, I don't have a phobia about heights. Right. I was, I couldn't actually lean all the way out. I was just, my hands are getting sweaty just thinking about oh, it. I could feel it over here. Right. So, uh, it, with war, you, people come back, they've been traumatized and, right. and to habituate them to their own traumatic memories. Their memory. Yeah. Because war is dangerous. So you don't actually want to go back into war. Right. But you want to habituate to your memory of war, which is not dangerous. Right. Yeah. So you find a virtual reality scene that's right. very similar to the right. one that they went through and you uh, heighten their arousal. You right. sustain that until their brain habituates to right. it. It's um, scary enough, but yeah. it's but cognitively they know they're not going to get hurt. Right. 
and you ex- prolong that exposure and right. eventually the vet can watch those scenes, even remember the memories and not have a PTSD reaction. They might cry. They, yeah, they might have sadness. They might grieve. They, they might, they might be upset, but they're not going to have PTSD, which is avoidance yeah. and, and withdrawal and yeah. depression and suicidal thoughts and Anxiety. panic, panic yeah. and distress and, Right, you know, physical overload, and and so you're saying that EFIT tries to do that. It's just it's very similar to that. Like how? What? What do they do? So I watched a video demonstration of this um, woman having a conversation with her mother, who's dead, with VR or no, just no. just visualization, just visualization, just imagining. Uh, and saying these things to, I can't remember the details, but saying these things to her mother where, you know, they had some difficulty in their relationship and then imagining and also saying the mom's responses. And, um, it was actually quite horrifying. And, um, uh, I've thought about it a fair amount since, and I'm not convinced that EFIT is a good idea. Because it could be overwhelming. Because it's artificial, because there is no mother, she's passed, right? So, I mean, I really, truly, I have two minds about the thing. Because on the other hand, most of the time, humans are not interacting with the world anyways. They're interacting with their stories about the world, and this story is already happening within her. And so, all the EFIT counselor is doing is helping a person just sort of flesh out the story and... um play it out as opposed to sort of nibble at it or have little flashes of it. So, all right, if I'm going to have this conflict with my mom, all right, then let's talk it out. And so they, I don't know, I wish I could remember the details. They probably, well, anyways, um, they have uh, this interaction and the therapist just simply watches it and kind of helps the person stay in it. Doesn't, doesn't, you know, doesn't play a character in the drama. Yeah. They just um, kind of, um, facilitate it, and the theory is is that um, there's corrective learning. Even if the other person, in this case the mom, does not change, right? Because that person might be recalcitrant. They might actually not be changeable. And to be clear, it's not the mom. It's her... It's her story of the mom. It's, and her recreation of the mom. Her recreation, her interject of the mom, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, this person's mom actually happened to still be alive. And we watched this whole video. And one of the prevailing questions after it was over, because it was actually very intense. It was really intense and really emotional. And So she, so the therapist, Sue Johnson? No. Oh, a different therapist yeah. trained in EFIT was yeah. uh, coaching this client through this exercise of yes. saying, okay, I want you to imagine your mom. Right. And I want you to think about what you want to say. Yep. And when you're ready, right. I want you to let her have it, you right. know, whatever's on your mind. Right. And so she gets into the moment and, you know, she, she, and she hands herself over to the exercise and, and lets her mom have it. Yeah. And then the therapist might stop and say, okay, now I want you to respond as if you were your mom. Well, yeah, I think there's not that kind of explicit coaching because it pulls people out, but there's an understanding and orientation. Okay. So what does mom say to this? You know, what does she say? And so the the client will take on the guise of mom without the furniture changing. So this is something that this person in the demonstration had done before prior to this videotaping? Yeah, she was actually engaged in a, in a this this was her therapy. This was just she, one session. So she had been doing EFIT before. For many sessions. So the therapist 
didn't have to give much instructions because no. the client Company already knew the gig. The gig. And so the therapy or the client then enacts the words of the mother. Yep. Might say like, "Well, you're just a right. You know, a, a stubborn little immature right. bitch. Some you know, kind of and that, da, 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 da. Yeah. And then okay, now what do you say? And then she steps into the role of herself yeah. and says a bunch of things back and to her. Responds to that, and they have this interaction. And you know, I would the the videos I watched. In some cases, the um, imagined person has a shift, and in some cases, they don't. You know, and what's the shift? The shift being one of um, perhaps understanding, caring, perhaps one of empathy, perhaps one of for the person they're yeah an actor yeah, and perhaps one of just simply explaining. Look, this is I'm this way because here's here's what makes me defensive or. Yeah. Attacking or whatever. It, this is exactly empty chair, by the way. It is. Uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, does uh, just as a side note, but does Sue Johnson acknowledge that this is exactly empty chair? The way my teacher put, I don't know what Sue Johnson says about it, but the way my teacher put it is, yeah, it's just we're not going to move any furniture. Yeah, I get that, but it, it, the empty chair doesn't have to involve furniture. By the way, you know what I mean? Like it, it's called yeah. empty chair. Yes, I believe they but, do indeed acknowledge that this is gestalt. Okay, they <laughs> just don't call it that. Yeah, it's yeah. just kind of interesting that uh, I mean, maybe there's more uh, an attachment angle to. Oh, this. definitely attachment angle. Okay, it's so all tell- based on attachment. So, so. So the process is you, you, she calls it assembling emotions. So you assemble the emotions. So like, uh, this is the cue. This is the thing that kicks off my, let's say my anger or my fear or whatever it is. And this is the story I tell myself about it. And this is what it makes me want to do. So my action tendency. And then you, you say, that's what you end up saying to the quote unquote empty chair. Is, you know, when you blah, 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 I feel this way and it makes me want to do this and and I'm really pissed off or I'm really hurting or whatever. Right. And um, which is what you would do in a couple therapy session. And then you would be facilitating the other person's response to that, whatever it might be. If it happened to be one of receptivity, you know, great. But if it happened to be one that evokes defensive, then you just slow that down and assemble that emotion, which is, you know, when you talk to me like this, I feel like I'm on the defense. I feel like blah, 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 and this is what goes on through my, my head, and this is the story I tell myself, this is what it makes me want to do. And so instead of actually engaging in the defense, you describe the defense, if that's what it is. Or if it's one of receptivity, you know, when you say that, I just, you know, I feel really sad. I feel really caring. I want to reach out and touch your hand. I, you know, whatever it is, you know, whatever my response is, I, instead of engaging the actual response and the story behind it and the feelings behind it, you are explicit about those things happening. In other words, you end up having a process conversation as opposed to a content conversation. Right. And I, the benefits of which I think are obvious to me and you in terms of people being able to communicate healthfully, healthily their emotional and attachment needs. Yeah. Uh, to Instead of – and to have conversations that most people never have, which is things like – like if you are talking to your mom, you're like, when you get defensive about and you put me down, it hurts my feelings. And uh, I have this fundamental need and desire for you to be proud of me and for you to love me and for you to hear me because I want to be close to you. It's not, I, I don't want some random stranger to understand me. I want you to understand me because you're my mom right. and I love you. 
And uh, it would just mean so much to me if you understood me and, and heard me. You don't have to agree necessarily what I'm saying, but I just need you to get it because I, I want to I feel like we're on – like you care about me, I care about you, and I. Yeah. When we get into these fights, we just end up hurting each other's feelings, and um, right, and and to be able to say that obviously to the person can actually build the attachment between the people, but when we have that interaction with our storied empty chair version of the person, we also can change our working models, if you will, of That's the idea of self and others. Yeah. You, you don't the other person could have never been a part of that conversation, but you've changed your working model, which right. is um, a focus of that I work with individuals yeah. as well. Um, you know, but the therapist also is a part of that equation, right? Because the therapist is there not as a aggravating or neutral agent. They're probably there going, good job. Like, I'm, I'm glad you're, you're saying that or that. So the, therapist can be kind of a corrective experience in those moments too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes the therapist is the other person. So it ends up happening between client therapists. Or sometimes the therapist is interacting with the empty, you know, the unspoken person. So there's variations on all the, that. The therapist will talk to the empty chair? Yeah. Will, and the, will the therapist be the empty chair? Good question. So the empty chair is the internal working model. Yeah. No. So I the don't therapist think wouldn't in, in, embody. No, because that's a real model. That's like me and you and our real relationship. So yeah. that's here and now. I did this with a client uh, several weeks ago, and she did not have um, enough of um, an internal sense of uh, her adult self that she could not interact with a younger part of herself um, well enough. And so I said, do you want me to? And she said, yeah. And so I did. So I came into the scene and I responded in the ways that I, I believed uh, represented the love and care that this part of her needed. So you acted as if you were the client. No, I acted as if I was me interacting with this client's younger self. Right. So she was in the scene and, the, and the, the, it was about her model of self. And so her model of self and in, in, uh, in her family and the experiences that she had and how her needs went unfulfilled. And so what we started with was her adult self sort of stepping back through time and um, interacting with that part. And she found herself at a loss for how to do that, which made sense to me because, you know, nobody ever taught her how to do that. So I did it. And um, not hard to do because, you know, she's a really lovely person and um, so much to like about her and respect and admire and um, uh, empathize with because of all the pain. And so, um, I, I, I was, uh, the, I was the model that she didn't have, or, you know, if the object relationship people would say I was the ego strength or representing or holding the ego strength or whatever. And, um, let's see. The, the theory is that, so none of it is, none of it is like real reality. There is no, younger self there's just a model of that in my brain mm -hmm. or you could say a hologram there's just a hologram and you know there's a lot of holograms in all of us and what you're doing in EFIT is simply stepping onto the holodeck like in Star Trek and interacting with these things that are already inside you so you're not really writing the program so much as the program's already in there and running 
and all you're doing is stepping onto the holodeck and interacting with the elements of it. Mm-hmm. Honest to God, there is no better way I can think of to put it is EFIT is stepping into the hologram, mm-hmm. stepping onto the holodeck. Because, and I have mixed feelings about that. I have some feelings I'm like, yeah, of course, that makes sense. And other parts of me are like, I don't know, this is a little bit scary because what I don't, this one client's re- reaction, not my client, the the video we watched was so strong. I was like really nervous. Like it's just somehow, and I thought, okay, but maybe this is my own fear of intense emotion. Maybe that's all that's happening here. I'm like, I could, I could see that. I could see that being the case. Um, one of the comments, a skeptical comment was, yeah, but this person's mom is actually still alive. So the next time she sees her, it's not like this thing that you have acted out in this session is actually going to be real. I'm like, yeah, and I, my teacher was like, yeah. But one of the things that is different is, um, she didn't call it internal working model, but she said basically, yeah, but she's not going to fall into the same things that she usually does because the thing that shifted is inside her. Right. So it may be very well that the mom is more receptive simply because she's not invited into the same old script that they fall into where they said the same dumb fight because right. the client is more protected or more secure or more whatever. And that's not the point of the therapy to actually change the relationship between her and her mom. No. The point is for the client to, and I don't know if they say it this, but, you know, what I would say is to change their working models of self and others for the better. Like other people have emotions, other people care, other people can be trusted. When other people are being upset and defensive, it's because they're scared and hurt. It's not because they're evil or vindictive. Or don't like me or don't love me or think I'm a bad dude or whatever. Right. Yeah. Because those are the attachment fears, right? Right. Yeah. And when we believe those things because of experience, we enter into relationships in a in a unknowingly self-destructive manner that actually perpetuates our rejection and isolation. Well, I've never done that. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, I was curious as you were going through the training, did you apply it to yourself at all? Or did you do this stuff to your, cause you could, you could literally just sit at home and do this therapy on your own, right? Um, yeah, I guess you could. Um, okay. You're asking, so, did I apply it to me? Well, yeah, I always apply stuff to me. I always think about things in terms of my own experiences and uh, my own attachment uh, insecurities, particularly in my marriage. Um, but I don't recall if we did any exercises in the training that were... No, we did. Of course we did, but I can't remember. Well, I'm a little curious about the training. So this was in Canada, right? Yeah. Because we have a lot of therapists out there who are interested in these kinds of things. Yeah. Give, give us like the details. How did you find out about it? How much did it cost? Oh. All, how long was it? That kind of thing. Okay. So um, I found out about it because I'm on a, a listserv with um, EF, uh, EFT community listserv. And um, they, you know, people post trainings and um, these kinds of things. And I saw it there and I'd been wanting training and this sort of thing. And it isn't a lot out there for a long time. And the teacher happened to be the teacher who did my uh, intensive training in learning uh, EFT for couples, who I really love and respect. And she's just, she's phenomenal. She's the best. Her name's uh, Lori Brubaker. And um, she splits her time between Canada and I believe it's North Carolina. Um, So she runs a EFT center down there in North Carolina and they, she offering this training 
I think it's this month. So it's Carolina Center for EFT, if anybody wants to look it up. Her name is Lori Brubaker, great lady, um, really smart and articulate, and boy, does she, she's a whiz. She knows her shit. Um, and I believe that if somebody wanted to go to this training, they would have a very interesting and good experience. Okay. Um, anyway, so I found out about it because it happened to be on that listserv, and I just, it was, for me, a continuation because it was where I did all that. My intensive couple therapy training was outside Toronto as well, and I just went to the same town, saw a lot of the same faces, and, of course, um, met my teacher again and uh, learned from her for a couple of days. Uh, they are doing an EFIT clinical trial in Canada right now, um, outside of Ottawa, and then um, somewhere on Vancouver Island. I just found out about that last week, and I sent them an email because I'm like, you guys recruiting therapists? Because, A, I'd love to get more training, and B, you know, that's interesting, and they unfortunately are not. So, But, you know, Vancouver Island is not so far for us that I couldn't make it work part-time. Yeah. But they're not looking for a counselor, so. You were thinking about working? Oh, fuck yeah. You would commute up to Vancouver Island? One day a week? If if because that's like a five six oh, hour yeah that's that's a two day commitment is really what it is yeah yeah I talked to her with Colleen she's like yeah it could be interesting so can't hurt to send an email and they said that right now they're not recruiting therapists for their research trial so how long was the eFit training it was two days and how much did it cost uh it cost uh, a little more than three hundred bucks U S that's it yeah four hundred bucks Canadian. For two days? For two days. Wow, that's cheap. I know. It was plane tickets, so there's that. But but usually that's like, I don't know, at least $1,000 or something. Oh, uh, training that long? Yeah. Yeah. With no. someone that is renowned. Renowned, yeah. Not like a... I found the cost of training in EFT um, expensive, but um, um, worth it. But But not so expensive just to be out of reach, you know, like, you know... I mean, it's going to cost, it cost me a lot of plane tickets and a lot of hotel rooms and, you know, whatever, but it was totally worth it. I'd totally do it again. So you've told us about the core intervention. What do you do afterwards? What do you mean? Do they talk about with eFit, like, okay, after you've done the quote unquote empty chair stuff, pseudo empty chair stuff? Oh, yeah. You process it. What was that like for you? Um, What do you learn from it, I guess, would be a way. I don't know if anybody would be that explicit with a cognitive question. Um, so let's see. Assemble emotion, enact, uh, then process, then I'm not as articulate about that as I want to be. Have you done it with your clients? Yeah. You I've did it with that one client. I've but done it twice. You've done it twice? Yeah. How, how'd it go? Well, both times. Um, I noticed that the partic- one of the people I did it with is someone that I see in another part of my life, another part of my work life. And um, with that person, that person happened to mention a way in which they were assertive in what I had seen before, a situation in where they might actually be passive. So and that was two days later. And I was like, oh, that's curious. So here that person is being more assertive in this time when, she, when they would have been more passive and... I wonder. So I I asked, is that coming out of that good work that you did uh, previous? And they thought that it that it was a piece of it, anyways. Yeah, right. It'd be hard to know. Yeah, impossible to know. But a uh, but, but probably, a natural conclusion or yeah. a a uh, quite a strong possibility. Yeah. That, at least that's the idea. Is is that when you change your working models, you change your working models. You right. operate differently. You operate well. That would be the point. 
Uh, yeah. It's not all the point. The point isn't necessarily to have some external experience, though um, that's often important and it is a marker. Right. Yeah. Uh, and to have it through experience, you know, like a lot of experiential therapies will state this, and I, I, I adhere to this as well, that you can talk about things a lot, and that can be great. Awareness is great. Sure. Awareness is power. Knowledge is power. We're not going to deny that. Nope. Um, a lot of my work centers around that. But to actually experience something that changes though your personality, essentially, right? Uh, that's where the fundamental uh, you know, changes occur that you don't you – know, when you're aware of something, you – the magic is that you're like, oh, I'm heading in down that road again. I can see it. I have that tendency. And if I, if I just coast, I'm going to go down that self-destructive road. I see it happening. I'm going to, I'm going to consciously overpower my, my tendency and go a different direction, uh, to have an experiential, uh, thing, <laughs> therapy that changes your personality. Essentially, right. you don't even have the, the tendency to begin with. You just, you, you you don't even have you don't have to exert any kind of control, so that's that's always that two pronged yeah. therapy that I always talk about yeah. to the listeners and my clients, which is that in the beginning, essentially, you're trying to raise awareness to exert control, and in the long term, you're actually trying to fundamentally change your personality, so you don't have to think about it at all. Yeah, cognitive knowledge by itself is not sufficient, but it is necessary in order to know where you need to go. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, in certain things, I think cognitive knowledge can do quite a bit. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying it's yeah. insufficient. Yeah. I'm saying that if we try to use our intelligence and our intellect to overcome, uh, in my case, attachment injuries or whatever, we're talking about attachment stuff, that by itself is insufficient. Right. It's not going to take away the feeling. Nope. You're certainly going to feel like shit. <laughs> yeah. But you'll consciously kind of have an idea of like, oh, I think I feel like shit because of X, Y, and Z. Right. Not because of what my gut is telling me, which is that I'm a worthless human being and I'm right. never going to be loved by anybody. Right. Um, but wouldn't it be great if you didn't have the notion to begin with that you wouldn't be loved by anybody right. and that uh, you're a good person, like fundamentally, you know, yeah. even when someone doesn't seem to be giving you that vibe, you know? Yeah. The experience of that is the thing that's going to be probably the most impactful. Yeah. Yeah. So this training was inspiring to you to do this kind of work? I'm on the fence. Oh, tell Isn't me more. Funny? Well, it's two days. You know, yeah. hard to hang a shingle on two days. Yeah. You know, like, am I an expert at this now? Do I know what I'm doing? Um, we probably are. I mean, it's not like this your first EFT no. uh, walk around the block. Yeah. So, so, uh, so I'm cautious about it. And then, you know, two days is it's not a lot of time to immerse in a thing and to have a sense of it. So, um, I guess what I want is more experience and more um, support and guidance around doing it properly to both hold me into it because um, it's not it's not what I'm it's not a go-to for me it's like new so yeah. it's easier to you know it's easier to just do the same old same old yeah um, and also to feel because one of the things I struggle with is confidence so and also to feel more confident really yeah you, how long have we known each other but I thought you were confident as a therapist I thought that was your one oh, zone dude. where you felt after all these years, because you, 
seemed confident when I first met you even before you even had the degree. I have times when I feel confident, but I'd say most of the time I don't feel confident. Well, tell me more about like all of us therapists have times where we're just like, oh, what am I doing? You know, uh, what's the depths of that typical lack of confidence that you experience? It's pretty deep um, and fairly consistent. Um, and I, what I notice is that my feeling about um, how I'm doing can vary wildly from, wow, I really rocked it today, or I really rocked this part of today, to, oh my God, what the fuck am I doing and why am I in this career? So, and... Like, how intense is that, what the fuck am I doing? Oh, it was bad last week. Really? Yeah, I worked two days last week, and um, then we went out of town. Now, granted, we went out of town to do something that's provocative to me. We went to to the East Coast to visit my family who I hadn't seen in two years. And uh, there's some loaded bits of that to me. And so I think that my feeling and attitude toward work was influenced by being anxious about going. Mm. And um, I just felt like uh, impatient and fuzzy in my work last week. Mm -hmm. And so I, when I got finished work that week, I was like, oh, my God. I like that word, fuzzy. I, I've been there before. Yeah. I think part of it that I'm protected by is I have so few clients. <laughs> I think that actually protects me from that feeling right. as often. It's a relatively – so your work with clients these days is relatively small compared to other things that you do. Well, not only that, but the energy that I have for each one of my clients because – I. I mean, if I just looked at my schedule, sometimes it's like hard for me to reconcile with this. But like this week I saw two clients. Mm -hmm. Last week I saw, well, this so this week I saw two clients and a bunch of supervisees. Most of my work is actually with supervisees now. Right. Last week I saw, uh, well, I saw two couples and two individuals last mm -hmm. week. And that was actually the two weeks before that. All supervisees didn't see a single client, <laughs> you know. Is, so, the super, is the work with supervisees um, different than the work with individuals? It looks the couples? same. They they come to my office. Yeah, yeah, they sit the on, sit on my couch, but right. uh, and it can involve a lot of sure. emotional work for the supervisee, of course. But it is fundamentally different because I'm not in charge of their treatment. Right. Uh, they have a therapist. The supervisees have therapists that they go to. Um, these people are often kind of like my friends in some ways. And so, uh, whereas with clients, it's, it's, it's much different. And I, so I think that yeah. I'm just remembering that feeling of working 40 hours a week with clients and having days where I just felt like, man, I, I really feel like I dropped the ball. Nah. Like I got, I got wrapped up in my own distractions right. or I was tired or I was, or that one client kind of put me off kilter yeah. and I was off kilter the rest of the day because right. I didn't have time to really check in with my emotions or, right. or I didn't eat enough or um, I may, maybe had one too many beers last night or something or, <laughs> or I had a fight with my wife earlier today or whatever. And, right. I, and, and I'm, I have that fuzzy feeling of just right. like, did I do anything today? Yeah, or, right. My brain was – I felt like I was – I was just a normal human sitting in a therapist chair rather than a therapist sitting in a therapist chair. Right. Uh, I, I remember that feeling, uh, uh, having that feeling a lot. But it's been, a, it's been 10 years since I've had a full-time practice. Yeah. So, um, so there's that. In fact, it's been exactly 10 years. All right. Um, 
so I wonder if that's why I have I don't have that feeling because you know it's not hard to get you know my yeah full therapist powers for two hours a week you know what I mean yeah I know what you mean uh so I wonder that but obviously this involves you know your attachment injuries right in terms of the the schemas and working models that you have regarding uh, shame and worthlessness oh yeah and rejection and so. Um, I just, I just, I mean, I'm sorry you go through that. Yeah. Uh, deeply sorry, actually. It's terrible. I mean, the listeners are probably aghast as well. They just be, <laughs> even through this podcast will say, uh, Bob seems like the best therapist that has ever lived. Oh, well. Um, no joke. Like, there's hundreds of people who think that. And for, and for them, they're probably just like, wait, that's a crime for Bob to think anything bad about himself like okay he maybe he has some rusty moments but jesus christ like that's just so unfair you know the only reason i'm talking about that is because there's probably 400 therapists out there who have the same kind of experience who uh struggle with self-doubt or whatever who are probably perfectly good therapists and um uh i kind of just want to be real yeah like this happens for me you know i made a pretty significant mistake yesterday um, I hurt a person's feelings at work and um, just felt like a complete asshole about it, right? And so I'm, as soon as I realized I did it, as soon as I recognized I did, which was immediate, I'm like, oh, you're going to have to apologize for that. And so when the time came, I did. I said I was very sorry. And that person was really, as you can imagine, upset and let me know uh, in very direct terms, um, you know, what my impact was and how off life and, and, uh, what I, anyways, what I did and what it, what its impact on, on them was. And they did it publicly. So this is in front of other people. And, um, one of the things I'm good at is like recognizing and just owning it. I'm like, yep, you're right. hundred percent. Right. Everything you're saying is true. I feel really bad about it. I'm ashamed of my behavior, you know, just proper humility, really, you know, and at the same time as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking, yeah, okay, but you, Bob, you have a tendency to take this shit way deep. And like, it's not like a bad moment. It's like you're a bad guy. So last night I went home and I was talking about it with Colleen. And she's like, you know, you're allowed to make mistakes. And you handled it really well. And I'm like, am I really, though? So she's hugging me and I'm there and I'm feeling really sad about it. And... I did something I'm really pleased about. I said to her, am I really okay if I make a mistake like this? Am I really forgivable? And she's like, yeah, you really are. And, you know, it's like you were saying earlier about the difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. I wasn't asking her for head knowledge because I already know that. I was asking her for heart knowledge and you know, she's the only one that can do that for me because I'll actually listen and believe her. So she said that and I feel a lot better. I still feel bad about, you know, the crappy thing I said um, and still fully am open to and in hoping that that client will um, speak with me about it further because actually I think there's some <laughs> there's some gold to be mined from it. Um, but I'm not like a bad guy. I just had a bad moment, mm-hmm. you know, or less so anyways. So, um, I struggle with confidence all the time and 
one of the things I'm glad about doing these days is using my attachment relationship to help me recognize I'm allowed to have a bad moment or yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I'm sure the listeners are too. There's moments where we we probably have these, me included, multiple times a day, hmm. where, oh, I'll, I'll think about me. Yesterday, I was at the university, mm-hmm. and I frequently, there's something about interacting with a bunch of professors and students and staff and upper administration where... I feel like everything I do is being scrutinized or something. Oh, wow. And because if I like if I just walk into like I went I went to KFC yesterday. Oh, yeah. Because I haven't been to KFC in ages and there's a KFC on Aurora nearby here. And great mashed potatoes. And I well, actually, I wanted to get a I wanted to get a hero because I was I was uh, I had a, a hankering for a. A Greek he- oh, so good. hero, yeah. And it was closed, even though it was supposed to be open. But it, there's this guy in there. He's he's like, hello, my friend. You know, he's that kind of guy. He literally says stuff like that. And mm-hmm. um, and it was closed in the middle of the day. Anyway, so I went to KFC. And at the KFC, like, I can be whoever I want. There's no expectations. I'm just a, I'm just a dude, middle-aged dude at a KFC on Aurora. Right. I can, I can say something stupid. I can look stupid. I can not know something. I walk into my university, and there's this pressure. I guess I put on myself, mm. which is that I have to be emotionally at the pinnacle of yeah. humanity. Right. I have to be intellectually at the pinnacle right. of humanity. Right. I have to be. I have to be dynamic and interesting. Oh, shit. As well. Like I can't just. Like when I bump into a coworker or something, I can't just be like, "Yeah, what's up?" Yeah. I got to be like, "Hey, yeah," you know, or I don't even know a professor, professorial. Yeah. Like, imagine two professors passing uh-huh. in the hallway. Like, what kind of insecurities pop up sure. that aren't present at the KFC? Yes, and I, I so it's frequent that this that this happened to me. But anyway, so yesterday. I was, I even actually, oh, <laughs> I was actually thinking about even emailing my friend. So I'll just say her name, Fiona uh, O'Farrell. She's a professor at Antioch mm-hmm. and she's in charge of the sex therapy track. No shit. For ASECT uh, sex therapy certification. And she created it with, along with our uh, chair and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, but I had a supervisee who uh, who went to a different school who I was talking to, and she said she had been a certified sex therapist. And I said, oh, so, you know, you're getting blah, blah, blah. And she said, oh, no, I'm getting my certification through this other organization that's not ASECT, that, is, that doesn't require supervised experience, and it's much faster. And I was like, oh, really? So, I mean, I had a vague sense of the industry of the certified sex therapy industry, but I didn't know that it was such a wild west at this point that like basically any organization can Could. can say you're certified right. as a sex therapist right, right. and asect has the most rigorous training and and supervi- you know supervised experience right. uh track and and these other uh organizations don't so it's so i and our and antioch we're doing the most rigorous uh certification process and so i went to fiona and i was like 
I was like, so I just, I had a supervisee from a difference. Actually, what I said was, I have a supervisee. So this is actually key. <laughs> this is dumb that I'm going into so much detail. <laughs> but anyway, I'm like, I, I had a supervisee I just talked to, and she said she was getting a certification through this other organization. Fiona, what's the deal with that? She said, Fiona's like, yeah, so there's actually a bunch of organizations, and, you know, we do the most rigorous one, the ASECT. And um, so, you know, the person, your supervisee, uh, must be doing one of the less rigorous uh, certifications. It's kind of a problem in our industry right now. And I was like, huh. And then I, I just, I just was like, I didn't, I didn't think anything more of it. I was like, interesting. And then just went on to the conversation and we separated. Later, I'm driving home and I'm like, oh, you know, I probably should have said something like, because, you know, she's trying to build this program. And I'm worried now that she thinks that I was talking to an Antioch grad uh, and that the Antioch grad rejected her program and went to a different certification program. One, because I'm worried about Fiona's feelings in that way. And two, that I didn't uh, push my supervisee to do her program. Huh. You know what I mean? Because she's, yeah. she's like a friend, colleague that right. I'm trying to help her out and right. and I should be trying to funnel things towards her, you know. Right. Especially since she has the sort of monopoly in the area on the most important, you know, on the most rigorous, rigorous. training. Anyway. Right. Um so I wanted to actually email her and say, by the way, uh the person I was t- you know, the supervisee I was talking to, she went to a whole different school. She started that that sex therapy certification program before I even knew her. And so uh I just want to let you know like I always try to push your program. Like I was trying to get into that thing. Right, right. Now, there's a small part of me where, and it's irrational, but there's a small part of me of just like, I'm not a good person because I didn't see it in the moment and that Fiona could walk away from that interaction feeling like Kirk doesn't, isn't a good friend. He's not... um I thought he cared about my program. Uh, is he actively even working against my interests? You know what I mean? Like, I don't think she would necessarily think that, but that I'm um, just not a good friend. I'm yeah. not a good colleague and I'm flippant or something. I guess that's the word that comes to it. Just sort of like I'm flippant. I'm frivolous. I'm what other F word, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm just not, I'm not, a, I'm like, I guess the image I had in my mind that I had in her mind was that right. I was a, a a sort of a dude who just only cares about himself. Right. And who sort of operates from life in that way. Right. And there's, there's an element of deep shame there f- for me around that. Oh, I hear it. And, uh, and you know, my first impulse was to reach out to her, which would be, would have been weird. It would have been like, so remember yesterday when I, <laughs> I'm sure she would appreciate it. I send emails like that all the time, by the way. But the other part of it is like, yeah, going to my wife or myself and just being like, am I an okay person? You know, it's such a frequent threat that all of us feel. Yeah, right. Uh, even in these little interactions that I'm having at the university that I told a long, uh, overly long story around, it's it's this this threat of like, am I am I a terrible person? It, 
is do does anyone love me I, am i okay uh the people who say they love me do they really love me do they really care or do they really know who i am do would they love me even with knowing the stupid things that i do or think or all the mistakes i've made you know there there's this defense i suppose mm. that i feel sometimes around this question around like well they probably don't really love me <laughs> like cuz they don't really know me and well, that's a safe place they yeah it's a safe it's it's like well they 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 probably think they love me or i don't know how yeah. I, I don't know if i ever put it into words mm. it's sort of like this quick thought of of, uh, they probably love uh, some of me, um, but they probably they probably don't really love all of me, and I should probably stop thinking about this, and I should just try to think about something else. I th- it happens within like a quarter of a second. Yeah, right. Like just like they don't really love me. They probably love me enough, but probably not as much as I really hope they did. Uh, and you know, I'm alone in the universe, and. Um, and when it comes down to it, they probably are more selfish than I would hope that they were. Damn. And, um, and I should go get a falafel sandwich or a euro. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's like some serious, really fast existential. Yeah. Deep, uh, conflict. Yeah. When I slow down. It's more acute, but sure. I'm more optimistic when I slow down, I think. Um, hmm. You feel optimistic now? You think about your friend and the possibility of her having some impression of you um, when all you were doing uh, was... That's a good question. Pull me back into that world. Cause oh, that, crap. Because that world is like... There's, again, because it's the university and all of us are professors. Have There's so much pressure on us, really, to be these superhumans that it becomes complicated they're all lovely people oh, yeah. all, all people no i work with right. are, are very um nice and and you know you'd, you'd love all of them no doubt um but there's just something about the pressure that we're all under i think but if i thought about the people like you or my wife or other people yeah i'm optimistic about what's in their heart um you know, it's sometimes hard to believe, I think, as what you were um, experiencing that day with Colleen. Yeah. It's it's somehow hard to believe that people really love you, you know what I mean? Or yeah. that you're not, that you're okay. <laughs> yeah. One of my friends years ago said this one thing to me because we had this fight um uh she, she was actually you knew her um stephanie sanchez do you remember her no oh you met her maybe at, at least a couple times but okay. anyway she was a good friend of mine from the early 90s and we had this fight and i was kind of worried about it but we had a close enough relationship where i went to her and i was just like so I don't know how we're going to resolve what just happened, but are we good? You know, and I, and I expressed that I was kind of worried that we weren't like, are we ever going to talk to each other again or something? You know, and I wanted to, I was like, are you ever going to talk to me again? That kind of thing. Right. 
And she was like, Kirk, we've been friends for a long time. If that small, although not comfortable interaction ruined our relationship, what kind of friendship would we have? I'm not saying it. Did you find that reassuring? Yeah. It was something along those lines. It was something Mm -hmm. like, something would have to be so horrible for our relationship to end for me not to want to be connected to you. Uh, And that does not, we both know that doesn't qualify. Um, Sure. In your head. Yeah. So it kind of communicated two things. One, her loyalty to me or dedication to me, which is important for attachment, but also this acknowledgement that fights will happen. And on the scale of things, that was pretty small. Yeah. And I, I often think about that, and I often will say that to people. Like when uh, I'll be like, I remember that was said to me, and I'll say, I'll be like, something along those lines. It's right. just like, look, you know, uh, the, yeah, that was a shitty interaction. You, you know, my feelings were hurt or whatever. But, you know, it's going to take a lot more than that to th- threaten our relationship. You right. know, like, come on, you yeah. know, let's be real here. Uh, Sort of a gentle reminder, yeah? Yeah, and I think it's an important um, thing to acknowledge and to communicate. Oh, yeah. You'll, yeah. Your need for that sort of thing will never end. Yeah. It's not one of those, oh, I have a fucked up child and I'm insecure about my relationships. It's like, yeah, everybody's insecure. Yeah. The secure people aren't, in, aren't secure. They're just good at getting secure because they know how to check like you just did. Right, yeah. yeah. And getting back to what you did, it's that you felt insecure and and you yeah. even said it that you I, I can't remember what the what you said earlier but you said something like and and i did something different or i did something yeah. interesting which was that you trusted colleen enough and your own worth to actually ask the question whereas other times you might not ask the question so in this instance you actually asked yeah am i okay yeah because you're probably like 51 percent sure that you are okay and you just you just because you wouldn't ask the question if you were only ten percent sure. Good point. You, you know you're okay. So right. you're like enough believing, and in your your inner working models of self and other have yeah. have healed enough where you're just like, I bet you if I take this leap, she'll catch me, and I bet you if I take this leap, I have legs to stand on on the other side of this you know gulch. Yeah. And but I'm not sure, but I'm gonna do it because I it'll really. You know, yeah. if I do it yeah. and she catches me and I land on both feet, then I'll feel 90 percent <laughs> sure. Right. Uh, but there's only one way to find out. Right. You know, intellectually, I could tell myself I'm a good person. It doesn't matter. I, I have to see it. I have to feel it. Yeah. It has to be experienced. I actually have to take the leap in order to get the benefit. Right. Which feels like a risk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. And, and that's normal. I think that's one of the biggest risks you can take as a human yeah. is to at the depths of one's shame to ask the closest person to you am i okay do you love me and for the people doing the catching like colleen it's critical that you notice because you could overlook it you could be like yeah you're fine yeah glib yeah oh yeah yeah what what, what are you talking about yeah you're fine what right. like why are you getting worked up about this it sounds like Colleen noticed, because of all your previous work, really, and just her own wisdom, that yeah. in the moment, it's like, oh, I know what he's really asking here. He's not just asking something small. This is like a fundamental question. So I got to think about that question and answer it in 
a commensurate manner of just like, yes, you're okay. I understand what you're really asking here. And yeah, you're, you're fine. You're good. You know, um, I think that is a example that everyone can follow in terms of now it's something you have to cultivate. So like when I talk with clients about this, I don't say, well, just go home and ask your spouse if, if you're okay, (laughs) because your spouse might not even know what they're, what you're talking about. Yeah. And unless you have that, because you and Colleen have been at this for, you know, 15 years or something. Quite a while. Yeah. Uh, learning about yourselves, learning about how you communicate, learning about each other's needs, learning about um, you've been in lots of therapy, blah, blah, blah. And so for you to ask that question, Colleen has a long track record up until this point to to know what you mean, to know what to say, to know what not to say. And to cultivate that in a relationship can be one of the most, you know, healthy things one can do. Right. 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 So that's great. Yeah, it was good. So EFIT. EFIT. Holograms. Yeah. Honest to God, holograms. That's all it is. Yeah. Holograms. They're already inside you. So another worry about holograms, because as a Star Trek fan, uh, did you watch all of Next Generation? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Great show. You remember when Jordy created that engineer i remember that and fell in love with her yeah so for those who don't know the chief engineer yeah played by lamar lavar burton lavar burton i want yeah. to say lamar jackson the quarterback for baltimore ravens <laughs> um god that guy has legs did you see him in the in the game against uh was it new england on sunday i didn't watch it my god i mean he the his ability to to run and juke and see a opening is He's like one of the best running backs in the league. It's crazy. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, LeVar Burton, and he's sort of a nerd. Yeah. And it was, he's, you know, he's not the ladies man like Riker. Nah. Riker was a ladies man. Picard got some too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, even, you know, Data. even Dr. Crusher got some. Yeah. Uh, Wesley got some. Uh, uh, Worf. Worf got some. Data yeah. got some. Data. Uh, Tasha Yar got some, but yeah. for some reason, the engineer never got any. Yeah. And then he is trying to work out this. Uh, he's trying to, he, he's having a problem with his engines. Right. And he needs to figure out a solution. And um, so he cre- goes to the holodeck and he creates the original engineer. Right. He like asks the computer, like, create yeah. a. Uh, hologram with the personality of the person from what you understand of this person's personality so that I can actually interact with the engineer who, who, who created these warp engines Right, with all her knowledge and skill and talent. Yeah. That's who I want to talk to. Right. The computer decides to sprinkle in friendliness and things that the computer doesn't really know or receptiveness to romance, this kind of thing. Right. And as the, as the episode is progressing, the engineer, uh, LeVar Burton, uh, and the hologram, they start to fall in love because they're both nerd engineers and they're both working on this heart. You know, they're in the foxhole together. And, yeah, right. And uh, LeVar, and I think they even kiss. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, because that was a thing that would happen on the uh, holodeck is, you know, you could 
presumably have sex with some of these. Uh, but it was a you know a PG TV show. But anyway, right. anyway, they fall in love, and uh, the real engineer in a future episode actually comes on the ship. Yeah. Somehow the real engineer, this woman, I think she went into the holodeck yeah. or something and like saw a recreation right. and was and was horrified, horrified to see that her image and her personality was manipulated by this engineer to it'd be like if I if you walked into my office and you saw yourself as a hologram like bent over with your pants down going like give it to me Kirk <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's an image, man. <laughs> I like it so much. Um, you're smart. And, you know, that was another element was the hologram was just like, oh, you're such a smart. Really funny. Yeah. And she's like, obviously, she feels violated. Sure. She's angry. She starts yelling at him. Right. And she's, how dare you? Right. And LeVar Burton is just like beside himself. Oh. He's trying to explain. You were yet to be mortified. there. Yeah. Yeah. So with eFit, is there a risk of that happening? Well, that was what I, that was what my concern was when I watched that one enactment, that one thing, because it was really emotionally intense. Both the person and the mother were like really in a heated emotional conflict that's completely um, made. If that's I don't like the word made because it implies a kind of contrivance and it's not contrived. It's just like this is this drama that's already unfolding inside each of us. Right. And it's just being talked out like psychodrama, really. I mean, when you think about it or gestalt, the same thing. So um, do I think that there's a possibility of like some kind of weird, you know, thing happening like on that holodeck? I don't actually think that that's possible, but the thought of it scares me anyways. What do you? What would you worry about? Like, what could, what could you see happening that would be something that would scare you? What, what the thing that scared me was that the person might walk out of it self-deluded, like believing something that's not true. That was the thing that scared me the most. And the intensity of her feeling was like, oh my god, she's really gonna end up believing something here, and I don't know if what she's gonna end up believing is really true because you know, emotion-based learning is really intense. Yeah. And so, so me, I'm thinking. What are we doing? We so she might walk, given the way she engineered the conversation, in that her mom was very defensive. Right. She could walk away going, I'm superior to my mom because I'm more open and yeah. more emotionally aware. Right. And uh, I, I'm more forgiving than my mother is. And my right. mother is just like this rigid, stubborn. Right. And if the mother were to uh, observe this interaction later... The mother might be like, that's not me. Yeah. If anything, she's the stubborn one. I'm always the one trying to forgive her. And I'm right. like, and the, and, and subsequently the daughter could walk away and, and maybe say, I never want to talk to my mother right. again. Because the client, through her own personality issues, has created a straw man. I mean, how many of us... Oh, straw man. I like that. I thought that's what you said earlier. No, but that's a great word. Oh. Uh, I was just using a word that I thought you used. Yeah. Um, all of us have had this experience where someone has an idea of us that's not true right. and that's distressing to us. If right. it's negative, you know, they're just like, oh, yeah, you know, Bob, he's he does this and he does that. And you're just like, well, wait a second. Like, yeah. that's not fair. You can't. Uh, right. There's more to that. Right. And the, and you're only saying that because you you're the stubborn one. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. Not seeing my own 
uh, contribution to the internal working model. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And how that interaction and therapy could uh, create more animosity between the two people. Right. And as a therapist, you might watch that going like, geez, you should have animosity towards your mother if she's like that. Well, right. Yeah. Right. Like... But that's not fair to the mother necessarily. No, it's not. It's it's two-dimensional and, yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's what you were worried about. I was. I was worried about that, yeah. And having that kind of power and influence, I'm, I'm not interested in making the world a worse place. Well, do they talk about in the model the therapist should monitor that? Did the trainer talk about that at no. all? Because, you know, you and I do that as therapists. Like, I'll, I'll have a client who will... Um, have either an empty chair experience or just talking about, you know, they'll be like, oh yeah, you know, my wife, I came home and I, I asked that question. I, I said, am I okay? And she was just like, no, you're not. And she mm-hmm. just walked away, you know, and uh, blah, blah, blah. and I'll, I'll be like, well, slow down. Like what, how do you think she interpreted that question? How did you say it? Did you have an attitude? Um, I'm not saying that your wife wasn't a jerk, but, you know, let's slow down and let's assume that there might be more to the story if your wife were sitting here. I mean, if it's the one thing that couple therapy has Uh truly changed my working model of human beings is there's always two sides to a story. Always. And unless you hear that other side of the story, it's hard to imagine the story even existing. Right. Um, You know, a lot of per- individual counselors fall into that. They end up taking a side and inadvertently, you know, doing bad treatment because they're not aware that. Right. And I'm guilty of that because before I got couple therapy training, I only got individual therapy training. And, yeah. you know, and, and you, intellectually, you know, you're just like, well, there's probably another side of the story. But unless you really, really experience you know. it day in and day out with with couples, and you're like, whoa, these people have completely different memories of what happened in that moment. Right. And I'm guessing neither one of them are right, you know? Yeah, right. Um, we see what we want to see. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the, I think, tragedies of our profession is that yeah. I, don't, I don't think that there are, there's enough awareness of that phenomenon. No, there isn't. Even in marriage and family therapy, honestly. Oh, that's good to know. Um, yeah. But, well, not so good to know, too. But I think for me, what helped me learn it very early was... Uh, most of my work in the first five years, which mar- was marriage and family work. Yeah. And to, uh, I-, I was repeatedly punished for buying into someone's story, you know, like, it, cause it would happen. Like, it wasn't just like, oh, I need to be, it was like, I would actually be punished. So like, I would talk to say a teenager, you know, about an interaction they had with their parents and. And the teenager, if they're pretty good, they would just tell me the story and I'd just be like, whoa. Yeah, right. And so I'd go to the dad. I'd be like, so, you know, we got to talk about what happened the other night. And the dad, okay. And I'd be like, so, uh, you know, when you did this and when you did that and that, you know, we'd have this conversation. Eventually, the dad would be like, I don't think you understand what happened. (laughs) I think you've already made a decision about what happened based on what my son says. Is it, you know, they would not say it in these words, but essentially they would be saying, is it possible that my son might be distorted in the way that he remembers the story? (laughs) Is it possible that a child who's 15 years old might not exactly have the best recall of an emotional event? Um, And then I'd be like, you know, hand 
palm to face right. and just like, be like, oh God. And this would happen over repeatedly. and over and over again. Sure. And then eventually I just learned, don't assume. Yeah. A, a sort of a similar phenomenon that I can think of related to this, that uh, marriage and family therapy uh, punished me into realizing was that I will never know if someone should be if someone should stay in a relationship fuck no or leave a relationship oh my god how would how the fuck would anybody ever know that well so i remember thinking that intellectually sure. and being trained that way right but it's hard to shake the at least cultural knee-jerk reaction right to look at someone's relationship either a couple therapy or individual therapy and not have a a opinion Your opinion about whether these people should stay together or not right Particularly the ones where it looks really dire. You know, they're fighting all the time. Right. There might even be some violence or something. Right. And I'm, it's, hard not, it's hard not to give into that temptation of, of at least thinking in the back of your mind, like, I don't, I'm not, I don't think I should personally in my heart be on board with this relationship. I should actually be kind of pulling for this relationship to end. Clients repeatedly punished me for going there I either verbally with them and they would later say like, you know, I never really forgived you for telling me to get a divorce that one day or by implying yeah. that our relationship was, was not good enough right? because it's been two years now and we we're great. And so, you know, why did you say that? that right. One time? right. Or in my mind, sort of getting attached to a certain result, either breaking up yeah. or not. And right. then something different happens and I'm, and I'm disappointed in the outcome. Um, yeah, you're right. That a person has to um, at least sometimes actively work at recognizing. I I might have an opinion here. I might have a valence, but I actually don't know. Right. And and landing on one side is a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a brief overview of eFit, hologram, uh, Star Trek, <laughs> um, sex therapy, uh, me feeling like a POS because I didn't support my colleagues' uh, attempts to build her program. What's POS? A piece of shit. Oh. They usually say a POS to car. Like, remember, be, oh, yeah, yeah. And the, like in the 90s, you'd be like, oh, I got a POS. Don't You don't remember that? No. God, remember when our cars were POSs? <laughs> remember my Acura? Oh, I loved your Acura. I know, Acura. but... It was such. It, it had three hundred thousand miles on I it. I know it was still running. Actually, I was just telling someone yesterday because she was talking about her car. Uh, my supervisor was talking about her car has a leak because it's a convertible and it, and it's uh, built. It, there's a pool of water like in the back seat or something. Bummer. And I I was reminded of the fact that my Acura by the at the last point of me trading in the um, the the you know the the water coolant system or the the heater involves water i think right. uh-huh and that had ruptured and was leaking water into my passenger seat uh floor and so there was an there was always a little cesspool oh. in in my passenger seat so i was driving around in like wet seattle with like a like a, sh- a shallow pool of water <laughs> in the passenger seat car <laughs> with probably like garbage floating on top oh, of yeah, it right. yeah and it's just funny to remember times when our cars were just POSs. Oh, uh, yeah. But I certainly remember mine. I'm trying to remember your POS in the 90s. The Volkswagen Bug. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. I don't remember you driving it very much, though. Oh, yeah. I drove it all the time. And then my brother gave me an old Toyota Corolla. I had that for a long time. That's the car I remember. Yeah. The bug was what color? It was like burgundy, like a like a wine color. I, you know, I can't. I don't remember that car at all. Oh, I don't think. Yeah. I remember the Toyota because yeah. that was in my head. It was like, so you know, one of those crappy '90s, uh, not so great dark color, yeah. uh, sort of a cord knockoff. Oh yeah, but worked fine. Oh yeah, I love that car. Yeah, yeah. Now you have a smart car. Now I have a smart car. Yeah, I had an Acura in between though. Oh, you did? Yeah, Integra. It was a great car. Yeah. It got stolen. Oh, it did? Yeah. Stolen? Stolen. Like forever? Well, uh, they actually found it down on uh, Des Moines Highway, down Kentway, and um, with the seats pulled out. And the cop told me, yeah, the seats are probably on their way to, like, you know, Eastern Europe right now, because they have value. They're going to be put into somebody's car. And I'm like, oh. And they totaled it out because... The seats were so expensive to replace that, yeah, it wasn't worth it. So because they were old model, I don't know why. Integra I, seats. I, yeah, I guess they were. You know, I thought they were just seats. They had a warmer in them. That was cool. Where was your car when it got stolen? Right out front of my house over there in Wedgwood. So they took your car just for the seats. Yep. Yeah. Just Acura just... Integra. Like what year? How old was the car? Not that old. Uh, late nineties. But like, was the was the car like ten years old? Well, like between five and ten years old, it was. Yeah. And they really wanted these seats. I guess so. My car had the coolest thing where it would not start unless you pushed in the cigarette lighter. It was like this built-in security thing. Oh. Right. So, and you, it's it's not like it's published. You know. Right. Did, was that a was that a modification? Yeah, a modification. Oh. Yeah. Pretty cool, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Adam Carolla, you know him? Yeah. He had he had a, a truck with something like that. He talks about it sometimes where it was this switch underneath his seat in his truck that was a fuel uh, kill. Right. And so when he would turn off the car, he'd, he'd, he'd kill it. And so people would uh, steal the car sometimes and they'd get like a block down the street and then it would run out of right. whatever no fuel, fuel was left. Line. Right. And then um, they would just get out of the car and walk away. Walk away. Great idea. Seems like there should be more things like that. Uh But you don't hear about people's cars being stolen very often anymore. But I remember Seattle being like the car theft capital of the world at some point, especially Hondas Hondas and Acuras. And Acuras, yeah. And uh, so, but I don't hear about that much anymore. Somebody got into my car. Believe me, I drive a smart car. It's not an impressive car, right? Somebody broke into it uh, and rifled around in it and then left. Didn't find anything. They took my garage door opener. Oh, no, wait. That was in the garbage. I just forgot. They knocked it in the garbage. And, uh, oh, you thought things. they took your I gra- thought they took it. And I'm like, You're oh, like why would you take your, my garage now door? Now they come into my house. Yeah. But so. they wouldn't know wh- where you lived, right? Oh, no. They were right out front of my house. And, oh. Yeah. It was parked in front of my house in my driveway. Yeah. Dicks. Yeah. Yeah. I don't understand. I mean, uh, it's like people, if you're desperate, like there's other options that don't involve like harming other human beings. Um. Like I'm resolved. Like if, if I remember a long time ago, I was just like, look, if you just want money, I'll just give you money. (laughs) Like if it, if you're in that much of a desperate situation, like, um, just take my money. You don't have to punch me in the face. Like I'll I'll do it willingly. Um, if you, if you need my car stereo, I'll just, you know, I'll give it to you if, if it's the, it must be that important to you. It's probably way more important to you than it is to me at this point. Uh, but just don't 
don't like fucking break my window and and make me feel like I live in a unsafe world. Yeah, and, right. You know, just just like our house got broken into last year. This house? Yeah, no, the the previous Your other house. house, yeah. And oh, I didn't know actually that. on the day we moved out of that house. Oh, someone was watching. Right. Yeah. And it was so dumb too. Like they um they took a shovel that I had under the deck that I would use for weeding and they tried to break into to the front door by uh banging on the lock and the and the the door handle. Yeah. Which I'm not sure, but is not an effective way of getting into a house. No. Like taking a shovel and just just as hard as you can, just just you know, clanging it against the lock. Like do you that would probably take an hour yeah. to like because you would have to you would have to break through the wood around because the block the lock isn't going anywhere, but you'd have to break it enough so that the wood around the lock becomes so mashed up that you can actually pull the entire mechanism through the front door. Like that would that just you know and they I think they tried to pry it open like a like a crowbar, but oh, but yeah. a um, as well. Yeah, but a shovel isn't very good for that. No, you're better off breaking the glass. Then. I surmised they gave up and we had a window right next to the front door that was open. <laughs> and I think it had been open for months because it was in a room that no one ever opened the window. Yeah. And I think someone in my family opened the, the window once, closed it, but didn't lock it. So they just, they just crawled in through that and took um, basically like, all of Stacy's most expensive things. <laughs> oh no! Because it was moving day, and I had packed everything. And Stacy's—I don't know if she'll listen to this, but she's kind of a lazy mover. Uh-huh. Or like, but I'm a very rigorous mover. Like I, I will have everything in boxes like two weeks prior to the move, because mm-hmm. you know there's always straggler shit. You know what I mean? Anyway, she's more of a normal person in that you know it takes her a bit of time and. She was worried about our, all of her expensive things, like her her iMac Pro, which was like a three thousand dollar computer. Oh man! Her all of her jewelry that right. goes back to like her grandmother's jewelry. Right. Her like five thousand dollars worth of camera equipment. Right, I was thinking the cameras. Like basically everything, the most expensive thing she owns, yeah. she had in one pile in her office, and they just oh, took all that. Man, yeah. It felt pretty bad. That sucks. Yeah. I mean, we had insurance. Yeah. But, yeah. That's, but it was very violating and it was very yeah. um, distressing and um, yeah. hence the ultra uh, security measures we now have on this house. The camera and so Camp, forth. It was several cameras. Nice. Did and, you guys put those in? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a pain in the ass and it's not cheap. Yeah, I know. But like, it's interesting because, you know, we were in Mexico recently and at right. any time, I'll just be sitting. We could just be sitting there, and like a little ding will go off, and we just open the app on the phone and be like, "Oh, we just got it." I just there's a there's a delivery guy at my front door. You know, there's something really that's cool. Kind of um, what do you call it? Uh, reassuring, feel, yeah, reassuring, reassuring. <laughs> that's yeah, <the> word. yeah. <laughs> to be able to at any time, anywhere, even sometimes I'll just be in my office and I'll. And I'll hear something yeah. like outside and I just pull up the app and I can see all the cameras 
and it'll be like, oh, it was nothing, or it was a raccoon, raccoon. or something. You know, that's it's, cool. Because you know, there's times where you're just like, in the middle of the night, you're like, did I hear something? Uh-huh. And then you kind of do the rounds uh-huh. where you look out all the windows. Uh-huh. Well, imagine just being able to pull up and and the and the cameras are have night vision. Nice. Like you know, I don't know what you call it, but like infrared or something. I don't know, but true, not infrared, but like true night vision, night vision. where. Um, in the dead of night, you can see everything extremely clearly. That's amazing. Anyway, has your house ever been broken into? No, but we live in a neighborhood where that could happen. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's an unsafe neighborhood on the one hand, but on the other hand. Well, when I lived just over the hill from you, a yeah. few blocks away, yeah. our house was broken into oh, with yeah. at least once. Oh, but that was dumb because I was doing construction on the house. Yeah. And I had taken down all the curtains. Right. And I had a bunch of lumber and tools outside of the most remote window mm-hmm. that you could walk up to and not be seen by anybody. And so they climbed up the lumber, they grabbed my tools, they threw it through the window. Oh, man. And they, the, I had no, and I wasn't home. And so you could just walk by the house at the time. And I don't know if you remember, there's this huge, I think your house has the same, yeah. you know, this huge bank of windows in the right, front. Right in the front. From the street, you can look into the house and be like, no one's home. No one's home. And I can see into the backyard because of the back, you know, like it, it, right. was, I was, it was totally stupid of me. Yeah. But, you know, it was the middle of the day. Yeah. And it was so dumb. I just want to tell a story because maybe it's part of my trauma processing. So they go into the house, they grab a random bag. So I, I surmise they walked into the house with no tools, yeah. these two guys. By the way, I, I asked uh, my neighbors, I was going around, did you see anything, blah, blah, blah. A retired police officer lived across the street and said, yeah, I saw these two guys. They look suspicious. And they were just walking around in our neighborhood, and I didn't know what to do. And then I saw him like 45 minutes later, and I thought, well, that's suspicious. And then I don't know what happened. I'm like... Well, why did the fuck you do anything? <laughs> like, <laughs> anyway, uh, so uh, so they break in the house. They don't have anything. They grab a bag from like my closet. So they didn't even have a bag with them. Right. They're rifling through shit. They can't find anything. There's rainier beer in cans in my fridge. They grab like. A, a 12 pack of that and but it's all like you know individual Loose. cans right yeah. so they so they just take they're like oh we can't find it this is me surmising they, we can't find anything we'll take the the cheap rainier beer <laughs> we'll break into someone's house to get a 12 pack of beer that's probably like seven dollars yeah right then they're they're going through the house they get to my office they open up my cabinet and they see that i have an xbox so they dump all the beers out in my office. Oh man! They grab the Xbox without any of the wires or anything, because because I all the wires are are like strung through all these different, yeah, you know. And I remember that. And it was like the so it would, it would have taken too long to get all. So they just took the Xbox, which is not that much money, because especially without all the connections, you'd have to spend money to get all the the power supply oh, and all that kind of stuff. Forget it, you're starting over. Um, and, I th- and then he took, they took like a, a laptop and like a really old, uh, w- CD Walkman at a time when like no one was really listening to CDs. That was dead technology. And, and the CD Walkman had, was covered, covered in Hello Kitty puffy stickers. <laughs> <laughs> Upon that. 
Yeah. I mean, it was probably worth less than a dollar yeah. or something. Right. Um, Jeez, did you even have any CDs left? Uh, maybe at that maybe. point. I yeah. don't know. Sort of at that transition time. But, right. But, um, yeah. I just, you know, I just wish people would just, it's like, okay, I get it. You're in, you're in a tough spot, obviously. Obviously. Or you're out for a cheap thrill. I don't know. Yeah, right. But there's got to be another fucking way. Yeah. You don't I, have, I never broke in anybody's house. You don't have to hurt other people's. Yeah. Like, you don't have to make them terrified to sleep at night. Right. It has that impact and it lasts. Yeah. Yuck. I'm glad you got the cameras. Yeah. Peace of mind's worth it. Yeah. And they capture a lot of wildlife. Like raccoons. Oh, no kidding. And... How fun. Hummingbirds. Oh, so fun. And neighbor cats and dogs. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's... it's, uh, it's a, that, that's mainly what the cameras are now, is like... Um, and for scaring uh, my mother-in-law. So nice. she comes by and takes care of the cats and everything. And so when, when we were in Mexico... <laughs> I, I saw her coming up the drive, and I, there's a speaker on it. Right. And I was just like, hey, Grandma. And she almost came out of her socks. Oh, man. She was like, ah! <laughs> Thanks for coming over. <laughs> Fun. This is God. This is your conscience. <laughs> but, you know, the, the flip side is whenever I'm outside my house, I'm being recorded because it records it. Right. And, and stores it. Right. So, like, when you think you're just sort of walking from point A to point B mm-hmm. and no one's watching you. Picking your nose. Right. Oh. Or or God knows what. Right. It records audio and, you know, it records the whole thing. And so, it's just kind of... Is it recorded here at home? Uh, not inside the house. Yeah. You can get those, too, obviously, but that seems like a little much. The camera has its own uh, recording um, um, It records to the internet. Oh, oh, it records somewhere else. It's always connected to the internet, these these cameras. Well, of course, they're right, because you have an app. Right. So it gets recorded in some server somewhere, God knows where. Yeah. Oh, wow. Hey, that's another aspect of it. It's like, you know, yeah. the people at Arlo, which I think is owned by Netgear. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, that does it for that rambly episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. And thanks, Bob, for um, giving us a glimpse into emotionally focused individual therapy proposed by Sue Johnson. Yeah, I think. Yeah. And trained by Lori Brubaker. She's great. And you can go to her uh, trainings in both Canada and the East Coast somewhere. Yeah, North Carolina, I think. And um, learn more about it. And if you want to learn more about emotionally focused therapy or attachment stuff, listen to the dozen or so episodes that I've done on all that kind of stuff. Nice. And uh, it's always great to talk with you, Bob. Thanks. Great to be here. It's nice to talk while. to you, too. It has. It's been like a month. The listeners always enjoy it when you're here. Oh, well. They need a hobby. <laughs> oh, wait. And you'll, you'll join us for the 11th. Yeah. Or the, the 11th episode. The 1,000th episode. The 1,000th episode on the 12th. On, on the episode. December 12th. Yeah. And uh, I don't know what we're going to do yet. Yeah, right. I, I, I haven't thought about it yet. But okay. We'll see. Well, it'll still be fun. Um. What could I do to you? Oh, great. You know, we could play a game like like um 
like we could say like because i was watching jimmy fallon the other mm-hmm. night yeah and they they took two brothers they took it was chris evans you know the guy who plays captain, oh, yeah. captain, captain america. america and his his brother yeah and they said like you know what's your brother's most embarrassing memory as a child. Oh, how fun. Yeah, right. This would be awesome. So, you know, and then you have earphones on and then you take the earphones off and you try to, you know, it's like the match game or whatever, or the wedding, newlywed game. Oh, the newlywed game. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, you have to get my brother to come out. Yeah, so we could play that game because you, me, and Umberto... Um, know enough about each other we might be able to play that game anyway fun alright please take care of yourself because you deserve it 